At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This whole time I thought changing the world was something you did, an act you performed, something you fought for. I don't know if that's true anymore. What if changing the world was just about being here? By showing up, no matter how many times we get told we don't belong. By staying true, even when we're shamed into being false. By believing in ourselves, even when we're told we're too different. And if we all held on to that, if we refused to budge and fall in line, if we stood our ground for long enough, just maybe, the world can't help but change around us. Even though we'll be gone, it's like Mr. Robot said, we'll always be a part of Elliot Alderson. And we'll be the best part. Because we're the part that always showed up. We're the part that stayed. We're the part that changed him. And who wouldn't be proud of that? Just show up and the world will change with you. Be present in everything and all that you are. Well said, Elliot Anderson. Played by the Freddie Mercury slash Night at the Museum dude. And what a scene from the Gnostic-themed Mr. Robot. Where all the personality fragments of Elliot unite during his literal saving of the world. Can we change the world? Save it? Well, like Elliot, you must realize something. All your complexes, all your shadows, all your bad memories, the voices in your head, all your trauma is not there to punish or torture you, but to teach you, wake you up fully. Become integrated in you for that primary gnosis that you have a purpose. You decide what is real and what is not. You. Your will. In other words, when you unite your inner world, you'll be able to make a true difference in the outer world. Just show up. All of the yous, because they're all amazing, because they've gone through so much to tell a story that matters. The world will then change. Oh, you freaks and outcasts, you of the broken places. I mean, in Thunder the Perfect Mind, the protagonist exposes all of her aspects. From the heights of being a goddess to the lows of being humiliated as a mortal rape victim. And everything in between. She embraces them, unites them, and shows them to a fallen creation. 
And in that tender honesty and savage assimilation, that acceptance of all that she went through in the pain-ridden growth that is becoming wisdom, she is victorious. I was pressed down like coal. I suffered. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. Or as Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, after the disciples ask him if they shall enter the Father's kingdom as innocent babes? When you make the two into one, and when you make the inner like the outer, and the outer like the inner, and the upper like the lower, and when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, nor the female be female, when you make eyes in the place of an eye, a hand in the place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image, then you will enter the kingdom. Every man is born as many men and dies as a single one. Heidegger. Integration. Wholeness. Every part of your psyche is rooting for you, just like the aeons are, and wants you to show it to the world and thus change the world. Or as Jesus also says in the Gospel of Thomas, if you bring forth what is within you, what you have will save you. If you have nothing within you, what you do not have within you will kill you. Do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? Ready to be like Elliot Alderson or Thunder? Then welcome to Aeon Bytnostic Radio. Welcome to that dream of you, that distant ship smoke on the horizon. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye, and then it's just gnosis. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. I am your host and pompadus of gnosis, Miguel Connor. Getting over a brutal month where all my complexes, shadows, memories, trauma, the voices in my head kicked my ass to some hellish depths. But like you, I'm listening, integrating, and becoming wiser. My inner world continues to be discovered. I'm not going anywhere. What do you seem to understand? I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me! So many amazing astral guests bring us the wisdom of the ages in this age of Hermes. Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. So much magic and lore to draw upon from past magicians, timeless myths, and our very ancestors speaking to us as much as the voices in our head. Our ancestors want a better world too, a holy Mandela effect. And what if you could go back in time and take all those hours of pain and darkness and replace them with something better? Thus, it's an honor to have back at the virtual Alexandria, Stephen Flowers, who will discuss his latest book, Revival of Runes. 
get ready to walk away from Omelas, because Stephen will take us on a potent history of runes, which means to a journey of European myth, magic, and meaning. What a scholar and what a friend of occultism Stephen is. A valis knight for the truth, always bringing ancient mysteries to a modern meaning. If runes are your cup of tea, then this show also doubles as a means to make better inner and outer worlds. Just as many other tools and traditions provided here at Aeon Bite. Whatever works for you, just make sure it works, as my friend Jim says. Can I raise a practical question at this point? Yeah. We're going to do Stonehenge tomorrow. No, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge. I'm not totally sure if we can save the world, but we can heal it at least, perhaps make it more interesting. But I do like this quote from Caitlin Johnstone, my favorite cryptognostic. You can't vote your way out of a mess that you didn't vote your way into. Nobody voted to let oligarchs control the government and tilt the entire political system to their advantage. Nobody asked your permission to steal your country. Don't ask their permission to take it back. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. And as Caitlin said of spirituality, false spirituality offers sedation and escapism from reality. It is very convenient for the powerful. True spirituality means expanding consciousness of reality. Consciousness of our inner dynamics and outer dynamics, which lead to suffering. Nearly all spirituality today is false. False spirituality helps you hide the ugly truths within and without by offering comforting narratives and practices which help sedate your emotional body. True spirituality brings consciousness to those ugly truths, within and without, and brings them into the light to be seen. The powerful benefit from false spirituality. They say, use mindfulness and deep breathing exercises to help you cope with the stress of a meaningless exploitative job. They glorify meekness, obedience, and poverty, and extol us to forgive those who have committed great evils. I want to become a guru so girls will like me. Then I will like myself. True spirituality is the last thing the powerful would ever want to go mainstream, because it means waking up to reality. The first noble truth is life is suffering. But the Buddha preached joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Inner and outer reality, my beloved truth seekers. Stop denying your potential and letting others dictate what parts of you to express. Start listening to that hidden universe of ripping stars that are meant to be your Dionysian 
fuel, even if it's painful and scary at times. Start looking at those around you who are waking up instead of worrying about non-player characters out there. Then we will meet the powerful, those butt slaves of that wickedness in high places, in the battlefield of the true seeker warrior. And, well, at least, at the very minimum, make the world more interesting and help the least of our brothers. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. We'll be like Elliot Alderson, who by name and character Mr. Roba is an obvious cipher to, yes, Thomas Anderson or Neo in the Matrix. Let's do it. And Stephen Flowers always opens doors of perception to the call of our ancestors. At least those who stood up to the empire that never ended. But first, tell us more gnosis, Elliot and Mr. Robot. There are some people out there. And it doesn't happen. A lot. It's rare. But they refuse to let you hate them. In fact, they care about you in spite of it. And the really special ones. They're relentless at it. Doesn't matter what you do to them. They take it about you anyway they don't abandon you no matter how many reasons you give them no matter how much you're practically begging them to leave and you want to know why I've been through that heals me and yeah I mean, there are setbacks we do fucked up things to each other and we hurt each other and it gets messy but that's just us in any world you're in and yeah you're right we don't stand a chance and yet we stand we break but we keep going and that is not a flaw that's what makes us so no I will not give up on this world and if you can't see why then I speak for everyone when I say, Fuck you! This is the A.M. Byte interview, and with us we are glad to have back 
Dr. Stephen Flowers, to discuss his new book, Revival of the Runes, The Modern Rediscovery and Reinvention of the Germanic Runes. Stephen, how are you? And thank you very much for coming back on. Oh, well, thank you. I'm doing well, and uh, I'm uh, happy to discuss this new book with you. Yeah, I enjoyed your book very much and uh, definitely fascinated. Okay. I want to look further into this. And with us, too, we have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm looking forward to a good show, and I hope I don't ruin it. <laughs> the puns. Oh, oh. Like, like Tony Curtis and the Vikings. Is, what did the ruins say? <laughs> oh, my God, that's great. I, I forgot about that. Oh, what a classic. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm sure we got more uh, puns out there. Um, what I wanted to start it out with, Stephen, is that uh, in your book, Revival of the Runes, you uh, talk about how you were an undergraduate student at the University of Texas in Austin, 1974. And uh, you sort of had an idea, and 10 years later, you got your PhD with the dissertation, Runes and Magic. And how do you feel about this? I always like to think of uh, Carl Jung who said, you don't have ideas, ideas have you. Do you think that's what happened? Mm -hmm. you, were, you were called to take this path. Oh, yeah. Another Jungian uh, fr uh, phrase or whatever, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, as I say about the, the experience where I just sort of heard this word, runa, in my ear, just like, oh, what was that, uh, in a kind of a unguarded moment. And uh, it was just this one word. But as I often have said, uh, when people say, well, God was talking to me the other day, and he said, and then he was telling them what, how to invest their money or whatever. It's like, no, uh, when a God, if a God ever spoke to you, probably one word would be enough. And from that one thing, everything else comes. Everything else. If you unpack that one experience, it will uh, last you a lifetime. And this is and something, yeah, and I'm sure, have you enjoyed this path of uh, the runes and uh, the Germanic religion and all that? Has it been great, or has it been, like well, some yeah, say, just it's, it's been it's, challenging? It's, uh, it's the, uh, the German philosopher Fichte, sort of his watchword was become who you are. And uh, that's sort of uh, what I think the journey has been, that is... Uh, just discovering who, who a, one, a person actually is. But that also involves, if you're talking about, as I was interested in, and a lot of people have been, uh, spiritual, mythic uh, quests and so forth, uh, that I have found that uh, becoming and exploring what uh, is r related to my ancestry has been the path that I took. And so uh, I was interested in those days, as most people, uh, starting off in sort of occult explorations, one gets enamored of the Kabbalah and that sort of thing, and uh, what then Jewish mysticism and such. And uh, I was, at the time, uh, married to a Jewish woman uh, of Jewish background, i put it that way. And, uh, and so I got to know some people 
in her family and so forth who were into Kabbalah and all that, uh, old guys, old characters. But uh, And it soon became uh, obvious to me, almost instantly, that uh, these people were becoming who they were. I mean, this was genuine thing. And I could never be that because I was not that, right? right? It was not my ancestral path, as it were. So I could see, or it also reminds me of how when I was just a little kid, seven years old, we took a trip uh, to uh, the Grand Canyon out through Route 66. This was in 1961 or something. And uh, I could, saw uh, these American Indians Zuni, uh, Hopi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just struck by this authenticity, even as a seven-year-old child, right? And a lot of people see this, whether it's Kabbalah or or American Indians or whatever, and they try to become that. And if you then speak to these people who have an authentic ancestral tradition, of course, they just sort of look at you uh, if they're honest and not just trying to market their thing to, <laughs> yeah. uh, to others, you know, they will say, you know, what, what are you doing? Why are you, you know, jumping on our, what people today in this world call cultural uh, appropriation or whatever okay. it ends up being. Uh, but say, so I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff, but it was just, I want to have that same kind of authenticity in a spiritual path. And so it was, there is no, well, I wonder what that might be uh, when you're honest and truthful. I mean, it could be Celtic, it could be Germanic or whatever, but since, for example, we are now speaking a Germanic language in our uh, gr- the grammar of this language we're now speaking, and so forth and so on, the structures of it, uh, which have hardwired our brains, actually, uh, is from that, which we've inherited from this uh, Germanic grammar, if you will, that it has structured our way of processing information that uh, that's what your mother language will do. If you grow up bilingual, you could be have too, but that that that's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. So the idea of nature versus nurture has been sort of shown by people here recently to be kind of a false dichotomy in the sense that we do have DNA and all that, but also because the human brain is developing at the fetal rate, actually, that's why the skull of the little baby is not closed yet uh, for uh, a couple of years after that. And it's really not completed, uh, it, uh, the brain growth is being hardwired. It's being constructed for the first five or six years of life. What else is going on in those years? You're acquiring and mastering your native language. And so the brain is constructed, constructed, not just sort of influenced by or it's part of the hardware of your body is this uh, this uh, influence uh, blueprint, if you will, that's inserted into the brain. And so all of that goes back when you then look at mythology to say this is the path of that I have 
am, that it constitutes who I am. And so that's been much of what I have done for myself and in my works uh, are efforts to communicate this to uh, others. Well said, and we are very uh, grateful of all the work you've done on this background, and I agree with you. We must become who we are, but uh, don't you agree? I I love a multicultural society, but I do believe everyone should honor and embrace their ancestors. They all, Every culture has a great mythology right. and wisdom and contribution, and in a way, our ancestors mm-hmm. are calling to us to honor them and say, hey, Look what we did and what we can still do for you. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's uh, ancestral. Uh, and that's where uh, my model, where people get involved in. So our, my tradition, this Germanic thing, uh, has been so beset by and plagued by uh, because of events of the 20th century of nationalistic uh, feelings and nationalistic uh, sentiments and that sort of thing. And that is contrary to the actual ancestral pattern. We are tribal, not national. Uh, we're more fa- family, clan, tri- tribe. That's where the uh, the essence lies. The idea of na- nationality or, quote, race, in quote, is not anything that was a category in the ancestral mind, right? Just like right. people make into, for example, uh, the Battle of Clontarf, where the supposedly, so the, the myth goes, the modern myth, uh, whether you're, a, especially among Irish nationalists, you know, this is where Brian Baru, you know, ejected those Norse and, and defeated the Norse in this battle and, you know, established Irish nationhood or whatever, <laughs> that kind of a thing. But the fact is, there were as many Norsemen in, in Brian Baru's uh, army or, or uh, warriors as there were uh, Irish. And then on the other side, there was many. Irish on in the uh, Norse contingent as there was otherwise. These people owed allegiance to their lords regardless of, quote, nationality. It wasn't a category for these people. They belonged to a tribe. If they were a part of a retinue or a warrior band, then they owed absolute allegiance to their lord. But nobody was thinking in national terms. That just wasn't a category for them. But in modern times, 19th century and following, the, this whole thing gets rewritten in a way that has been obviously very counterproductive because national level of things uh, is too large to be on an intimate uh, relationship with. And so it becomes then something that inauthentic propagandists, political operatives, etc., can manipulate and and make fools out of us by by appealing to things which are not even real. And so we get led down, and people all over the world, all groups, everywhere. You know, you can go everywhere, and you see this mm-hmm. kind of a trend. 
but uh, if you see that you want to relate to ancestors, family, ancestors, and also your own body, as I consider it, uh, uh, when you think about fourth dimensional realities, hyperspace, hypercubes, tesseracts, etc. Right. I mean, our bodies are kind of, you look at the body as a kind of a hyper body. That is that it has all of the information in it of its entire ancestry. And so it's just lying there, latent, but uh, if, and that's where Jung, for example, originally said, well, we can uh, reactivate through active imagination, etc., reactivate this information and gain access to that unconscious part of our, ourselves. But uh, if done, as my, my personal experience, if done in a genuine way, you have uh, uh, you're, you're, you're made your soul safe from all of these uh, terrible you know, manipulations that sometimes politicians try to put you into. However, <laughs> I'm most saddened by just over my lifetime about how much our tradition has been hijacked by pol pol political types, right? And left, you could say, you know, the the PC crowd or the nationalist crowd. Everybody's just like uh, done a disservice to the whole thing. Uh, it's just it's a great disappointment. But that's where I have put my efforts, which has always been there. It's never I was never sort of moved to create a huge movement. Rather, my concentration from the beginning has been on initiatory relationships within uh, what is the guild within a so it's like a trade guild uh, but it, we trade in the secrets in the mysteries and that's our uh, subject matter and that's what the rune guild is and I am incredibly satisfied and happy with the success of that organization especially now that it's I no longer lead it directly. Uh, it's in the hands of others who are just carrying on in an exemplary fashion. And uh, that whole story is told in a book put out by Arcana Europa called The History of the Rune Guild. And this book that we're talking about mainly today, uh, Revival of the Runes, is sort of uh, history of the Rune Guild, as it were, uh, and it does touch on the Rune Guild at the end, but uh, in the time between the demise of the runic tradition, that is the Christianization of Europe, and, uh, and so the, the uh, context of the original guild of rune masters was lost, and then people start to try to revive it, but it's a stumbling, bumbling <laughs> story about how people... <laughs> Uh, didn't know what they were doing for, for centuries, really. But there, the urge to do it was there. But the uh, either the raw data for, for, for doing it, or the motivation wasn't there, or the data wasn't there, or it was uh, confusing to people, including scholars, of course. 
Yeah, well, we're very happy you are, you've done this work. I think we need constant clarity. I mean, for example, runes are still very popular. Modern fantasy, modern occultism. Uh, I watched the show WandaVision, and at the end, they're using runes and uh, throwing it out there. Obviously, a long time ago, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. So of course, runes uh-huh. was always part of our campaign. Gary Gagex never brought the Kabbalah or Greek Gematria, but man, he could hit you with the runes. And uh, even recently, I was... Uh, there was that controversy at CPAC with the stage. I don't know if you're aware of it. Where yeah, the I saw sta- somebody. And uh, I was like, I wonder if somebody gonna, yeah, somebody gonna interview Doctor Flowers and ask him what his opinion is on. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh Lord! I, I, somebody, I, I responded on a Facebook thing about it. I said, man, that's like this belongs to the same thing, the same crowd, or same kind of mindset that you know sees messages from. God in the fin and in the shapes of clouds or like look at us. Jesus on a toast. The rock, you know, that rock is speaking to me. You know, it's that kind of thing like that. Uh, there, uh, you know, if privately, that is, uh, there's a lot of things which you wouldn't, which a magician, a, a magical person, initiate, etc., such as I would say I am myself, and you probably are, and a lot of people are. There's a category of knowledge or communication, just like the word Naruna story. It doesn't, uh, the, the, the experience, the subjective experience is one thing, but if, by what it uh, means, it is, it is borne out by what actions it causes you to do. And then you measure its validity, importance, power, etc., from that, but it's more like a poetic reality that then becomes the motivation for bigger and better things, or it can just lead to stupidity, insanity, and delusion, which is usually where those kind of things go. And that's where uh, discipline and uh, initiatory and tradition and so forth come in. The runic revival was fraught has been fraught, it continues to be by the most the greatest nonsense in the world where people such as the famous uh, uh, everybody knows of ralph blum i write about him in the book and uh, of course that was a big uh, breakthrough i had actually written a book on runes and rune magic and so forth when i was still just a pup you know in 1975 so I heard the word in 74, by the next year I'd completed a book. It was largely a translation and a digested form of the Armanian tradition of, of contemporary Germany. And uh, it was said, okay, in 1975, we're going to get you. I've had a, a deal, a handshake deal uh, with uh, Francis Hall, you know, to publish this thing and all of that. And then... Time goes by, and they say, well, uh, I uh, talked to the marketing people, and uh, they just don't think we can sell rooms. What? This, this was 1975. Yeah. Now, what I see there, in, my, in retrospect, and saw pretty quickly, is that this Armanian thing was not authentic. It's not the authentic runic tradition. It's a... Interesting 20th century phenomena in Germany, Guido von Liszt, etc. 
but it's not the thing that I was intended to find, that Runa, that the old man, as I call Ozen, uh, it, was directing me towards. And so, again, going back to Jung, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God, mm-hmm. is that this uh, entity said, boom, I break your sword, I, you can, I'm going to make you fail, you know, because this is the wrong path. So it was over, you know, and then so forth. And so that was, and then I started to study Old Norse to do the language and all that and got into academia, discovered much more about that, got mentors uh, and became, and, and, and quickly, quickly uh, saw what I was, in, I was really intended to do, to go deeper. It's like, go back to school. You're not finished. You think you're <laughs> so smart. You think you've done something here, but it's the wrong thing. So uh, you gotta, I'm going to cause you to fail, and I'm, I'm going to set you on the right path. and Or you just have to find that right path for yourself one way or the other. And so that's what uh, happened with me. But a lot of times... Being thwarted is exactly the thing that needs to happen, and uh, so that's that's how I transitioned into a more authentic path. But all those things are happening pretty rapidly when you look at the when I think of how time goes by so quickly now as as you grow older, and how much happened in my younger life, where a lot of things happen in a short space of time. And so we're talking about just a few years here and uh, went from one thing to the other quickly. But uh, that's always important to uh, focus on, I think, is, is, is what am I supposed to do? I mean, what, what is my, uh, as I've said before, people say, well, I wish I could just do magic and just make things happen. <laughs> well, well. You know, would you really uh, tonight say, well, what do I want? What do I want to do? What do I want? What do I want? Uh, and if you could just wave that magic wand and make it happen, you know, are you wise enough? Do you know the unintended consequences of success? And in my case, this example, the unintended consequence of success would have been if that book had been published in 1975, sure, I would have been had to jump on old Ralph Blum by far, right? By years. Actually, he got the idea indirectly through, you know, I'd circulated the manuscript in many places, and that's where it got the idea. Rooms are, probably we can sell them, but this guy's book is too, is not popular enough, you know, so I think that's what happened, honestly. But uh, in any event, uh, if I had to, uh, had quote success at that point, I would have been sort of locked in in a way, or had this albatross around my neck of this inauthentic product, which I would pro- probably have been popular, probably would have sold after all, but I would it would have been a tragedy really to be saddled with this kind of. Uh, inauthentic uh, product. 
And so actually, of course, it was good. I wasn't wise enough. I waved my demand. I was, but then, oh, no, you, that's wrong. That is not going to be beneficial in the long term. But most people think, well, I'm just going to make things happen, you know, <laughs> and uh, what I want right now. But I think few people are ever quite wise enough to uh, really have their magic result in them being happy, you know, uh, because the power can often exceed the wisdom. Yeah, well said. It reminds me of what, again, going back to Jung, he said, we didn't come to this world to be happy, we came to be whole. And I think Jung said, uh, free will is doing exactly what you're supposed to do, what your psyche has it, what the people in Thelema call the true will or the hermetics call your will. We all have Uh a destiny and it's right there. And going against it is like Jonah trying to resist Yahweh. It just brings a lot of pain. And I've been that way too. I've gone away from, I know what my path is and I just let my ego take me to some bad places, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, it's uh, a struggle, but the struggle is part of the story also. If it was all easy, then it wouldn't be, it literally (laughs) really wouldn't be much of an adventure, wouldn't be much of a story (laughs) uh, to tell at the end of the day. Oh, yeah, agreed. And, uh, yeah, so moving on to your book, for those who might not know, again, it's uh, not just the revival, but you do a, a great job of giving us a, a, a description of the history of runes and how they, uh, they came into being and how, well, there was a, there was a fall, a deterioration in its interest. But I'm fascinated. You write in one section, Stephen, that, uh, the runes were probably, uh, invented, uh, and it wasn't Odin, by one individual based on Mediterranean script, probably between 150 uh-huh. and BC and 150 CE. That's a fascinating, uh, yeah, yeah. How does somebody come into that theory? Well, because, uh, this is not a, uh, mystical or, you know, magical theory. It's just a scholarly uh, theory or consensus for the most part. And it it lies in the fact that uh, the runic uh, record, the inventory of the symbols, uh, shows an uncanny uh, regularity of the number of signs, the order of the signs, and that uh, through various tribes, uh, that that used them that the earliest examples uh this consistency is there and so when compared to the history of other alphabetic systems the order for example the greek alphabet or other truscan any kind of alphabet you want to compare it to the early history of these things often show quite a jumble of order and number of letters and and so forth. We think of the Greek alphabet by this time, by this time when the runes were uh, shaped, uh, the Greek alphabet had settled down to a 24 symbol system. But before that, it had been uh, various numbers uh, of of letters and and put in different orders, etc. You could learn an alphabet just say, well, that 
symbol has this sound, that symbol has that sound. But the idea of putting them into a definite order uh, is uh, sort of a school, implies that there's a school involved that's teaching this order. Recite your alphabet, you know, and so forth. And they sing this little song to learn it and all of that sort of thing. But the idea that there's consistency across tribal boundaries, uh, a consistency uh, it is anomalous, really, in the history of alphabetic systems, just when you compare it to others, the earliest phase of it. And so uh, this then results in people believing that it must have been an individual inventor who was a person who was well-placed or got became well-placed in the culture uh, due to his invention of prestige. Prestige is the greatest power in culture, right. not force or violence, but prestige. Uh, uh, this uh, system spread uh, in, a, in a school of some sort where this uh, skill was conveyed. And so that uh, just is the best logical explanation for its consistency from an early time across tribal boundaries. Again, we don't, when we think, well, these are all Germanic people, so they must have all got along, they must have all uh, (laughs) been part of the same, you know, everything. It's just kind of like we think of a country today. And that was, of course, not true. These tribes fought with one another like, you know, like anything. They were just competitors fighting, et cetera. But one thing we know about this ancient culture is that uh, one type, there's a couple of types of people that could get pretty free access between and among the various tribes uh, due to the fact that they wanted what they had, these individuals, which were storytellers, poets, things like that who went from place to place telling news of faraway places and such and entertaining the folks with uh, uh, epic poems and, and stories and things of that nature. And that same guy might have also been bringing along trade goods, you know, uh, luxury items, etc. He was a tra- in trades, poetry, etc. Now that, uh, of course completely covers a major part of that god Odin. That's not, again, it's not a god, but people who were his followers. They were uh, involved in the trades, so business, uh, trading, as well as uh, uh, poetry and uh, the linguistic arts, if you will. And so these people were in great, were given entree from one tribe to another, because people wanted what they had and what they offered. And uh, it was more what they knew and what they were able to provide than uh, anything that they physically had, like just a piece of gold or whatever, but it was in their brains that what people wanted. And uh, so these people would quickly, could, could quickly, or I, a school of these kind of people could quickly spread this uh, knowledge throughout all the tribes because of that. They were also, uh, as Tacitus describes, uh, 
tribes, various tribes would be part of a sort of a tribal confederation, and that was all formed by religion, really, that they had a common god or cult, and they would come together periodically for uh, everything, for sacrifices, probably for legal uh, adjudications and uh, religious sacrifice, as well as trade when they got together, things traded, etc. And so they would come together, and in that context, uh, information could be spread quickly. So all of that really describes how such a thing could happen. But what's really incredibly, what a lot of scholarly runologists today don't sort of, or they ignore, some of this, they, um, they say, well, the runes were just an alphabet like any other, and uh, there's really nothing magical about it at all. It's just, uh, that's all just later romanticism, etc. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, of course, that uh, said, well, why would somebody, uh, if these things came into being, let's say 100 BC or something, and then we go, well, where's the literature? Where's the, why didn't they write anything as far as writing on paper or parchment, et cetera? The Romans were doing it. The Greeks were doing it. <laughs> and they, they did it quite quickly as far as their alphabet. That's what they invented it for. That's what they used it for. But yet the runes, well, a century goes by, two, three, four, five, centuries upon centuries, generation after generation, there is no quote, literature, end quote. They're just these inscriptions. They never used it for writing in the, in the normal sense. What, what this, this culture was, was what uh, historians of writing and linguistics and so forth who call a culture of uh, restricted or limited, obviously, but restricted literacy. And so it was just used for certain things, but not, it wasn't a literate culture. They were illiterate. They used runes, but that, and, and so that person roughly estimated that no more than 1% of people were literate in runes at any time throughout the pagan period, even at, into the Viking Age. So, uh, that is something that has markedly separates uh, culture and its literacy and attitude towards literacy uh, of the Germanic peoples versus the Greeks or Romans who were using writing in a completely different way. And that isn't just a matter of speculation, as I said. <laughs> well, centuries go by and there is no literature. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you cannot say, well, it was just like Greek or Roman letters, really, but it didn't act that way. But weren't know? they pictographic, to, uh, Stephen, as opposed to, uh, you know, um, concatenating letters like uh, like in ours? I always thought the runes looked like they were meant to be struck with a chisel. Mm-hmm. Or they, they were uh, with in stone, but most runes were carved uh, uh, into wood, of course. The whole took terminology of runes, that's what I call rune staves, which is stick, right? Yeah. And that the word for stick is became synonymous with rune itself, so that, uh, that this was the thing that they mainly carved. And of course, all, most all of that is 
disappeared. Uh, but a few things like that have remained because they were in peat bogs, et cetera, and, ha and have survived. We have wooden objects from a very old time, but they were in peat bogs, and that's why. And so, uh, but but we know that that uh, we only have a super small amount of what was actually uh, carved. Uh, Ibn Fatlan, the uh, Islamic uh, traveler and uh, statesman or whatever, you know, that traveled among the Vikings around 900 uh, up at, through Russia. And, uh, of course, his uh, book on them uh, and other peoples became the basis of Michael Crichton's book, Eaters of the Dead, which then became 13th the movie, Warrior. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the 13th Warrior, right? But uh, his thing was just uh, describing these people. It wasn't a story. It was just, well, this tribe does this and that one, and I saw this, and I talked to this guy. And there's a lot of interesting things in there uh, as regards runes and religion of the Norse and such. These were Swedes called the Rus that uh, he was encountering, but he encountered many tribes and many peoples he writes about. But uh, for once, uh, one thing, of course, uh, he describes, he asks one of them that at this f uh, funeral where they're burning the body of a, of a chieftain in a ship, you know, and they, and they burn it uh, as a funerary uh, ritual. And he says, well, well, why are you doing this? What is this? You know, it's just like so Islamic people. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, so, well, say so you, uh, Arabs or whoever, you know, you bury your dead, your honored dead, in the ground where worms and things like that eat them. And that, that's uh, it's disgusting. He says, but we burn our honored dead so that they go at once to paradise. So, you know, there's like a... a insight right even right into the attitudes of these people towards their rituals that he provides um, unintentionally or just as a matter of uh, he probably thought these people are crazy <laughs> but uh, and another thing he describes in connection with that also in how we know that they must have been many runic inscriptions there that are long gone is that he describes a sort of a graveyard where there are plaques made of birch wood that have, you know, that have on them written things about uh, who's there and what they did and so forth and so on. So he does describe uh, the, the use of what were probably obviously runes, because that's what these people had, uh, and what how they did it. Now, in the, back in Sweden, of course, the same people, uh, exactly the same ones, uh, uh, are often memorialized in the many rune stones that are found in Sweden. There are 5,000 of them just in the countryside uh, that are memorial stones. They aren't really grave stones because they aren't really on the grave. They may be in the environs of it, but what the rune, runic rune stone typically uh will be on a roadside or somewhere where people will pass by and see it. Now, again, 99% of the people passing by would not be able to read it, but they would know, oh, this is probably just because they're from the area. This is so-and-so stone, you know, this, oh, so we know that. But, uh, but what it says, we don't know. 
But when someone does read it, one of those 1% people who does read it, which would be an act of deciphering if everybody's probably seen one of these stones, a picture of it. And they, of course, they have typically have serpents and the runes are carved in the body of the serpent. It goes all around the stone and just in this confusing mass. Somebody has to spend a lot of time finding where does this thing start and then just kind of working it out room by room. The system they used was not easy to read. The, the, there were a lot of symbols that were uh, meant several sounds, so you would have to sort of know what it, almost what it said before you read it. It's I'm a shorthand. So what is going on here? Now at the end of some of these stones, you get the answer. And of course, it's probably true of all of them, but sometimes they come out and say it. And at the end of them, in the pagan times, it would say, uh, good luck to him that carved it. Good luck to him who is reading it. So it was kind of a magical blessing. It memorialized the person. It also gave credit to everybody involved. It was like reading like a, a credits in a movie. It said, so-and-so, this stone is so-and-so. Um, for for this person, and it was carved. It was uh, raised by so and so, another guy, and and then at the end, it'll give it the guy who carved its name. So it's memorializing and building up the prestige of several people connected to the person and or to the stone. And but at the end, that's the the key is that when reading this. You give boon, you give uh, some kind of blessing, and then later on, the, the stones will, when it's in Christian times, they'll say, God bless him who carved it, God bless him who's reading it. And so this is uh, it gives insight into how the stone works, what it's supposed to do. It's a do, it's a thing that does something. And uh, which is give benefit through eternity. And I've many times I refer to the runes, they're, they're strong standing, eternal runes, Ivarunar, eternal runes, meaning they're last forever because they're you know, carved into granite here. And so they have, <laughs> so they do still exist, unlike those birch uh, plaques and so forth. Uh, those Swedish rune stones are still there, and it's easy to read the days the word the day they were carved. You know, as far as their legibility and such. So, but that gives insight into what it was all about. You know, this tribal connection, connection to the Lord uh, who, of this part. Many of them, some of them, not many, but a few, actually reference this thing in Russia. These uh, Rus who had who had uh, trade routes and war. They, they went down, there was a Viking raid on, on Iran, more than one, but uh, they sailed wow. these Viking ships across the Caspian Sea and fought. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, the Eastern Road, as it's called, is little is known about it as compared to what we know about the Western Road where the Vikings were 
invading and, and, and uh, England and Ireland and all of that sort of thing. And of course, we, our language, our English language, <laughs> Is uh, uh, has a high percentage of Norse words in it because, of course, at the time when Old English was spoken, the languages were not quite in mutually intelligible, but really close. It wasn't hard to understand one another. And uh, we have words like shirt and skirt. That's the same word. You know, the way if you said, well, what does it look like? Well, it's kind of a kirtle, you know, thing that, that just a... That's the but word is the same, but the skirt pronunciation is Norse, and the shirt pronunciation is English pronunciation of the same word. So, uh, but then it separates out semantically into two different things. But that's uh, if you just go through the dictionary, look and look at the etymologies and how many times our words are actually Norse words. Because half of England was under uh, Scandinavian rulership for centuries, so they sort of and it sort of repaganized much of England, that converted to Christianity, but the, the, the Norse were for the most part uh, still pagans. Fascinating, yes, and uh, it reminds me what you were talking about, Stephen, about the. Uh, the guy seeing the tribes that were born, their corpses, I remember many years ago dating an Indian girl, and she was, told me once, you Westerners are insane. In 10,000 years, uh -huh. you're going to run out of land, and you won't have any cities, <laughs> just cemeteries going for thousands of miles. You're like, burn your corpses. I was like, you know, I was just, I just appeared in this mythology. I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah. So same thing, of course, it's the same uh, Indo-European uh, mindset behind both examples, uh, uh, which wasn't universal. Uh, usually, cremation early on was something that was a high, higher prestige thing because it takes a lot of effort to burn a body. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I mean, it takes a lot of a lot of BTUs, a lot of <laughs> a lot of wood, a lot of uh, it's a, a complex thing. Uh, yeah, but God ain't creating any more land, as the saying goes. So <laughs> you're gonna run. Yeah. <laughs> well, in like Germany, and places, you know, so like in Germany, they, they they bury people. If you're not somebody important, they're gonna dig dig you up. I mean, it's gonna be you're gonna be dug up. Yeah, and, Mexico uh, too. Yeah, somebody else buried there. I mean, it's like because land is very it, there. It is running out in the sense that uh, they do that. I mean, it seems weird, but that's happened. <laughs> that happens all the time. <laughs> that's enough. Uh, and that's, uh, you've been there long enough. Yeah, you're evicted. But that's kind of, uh, in the ancient times, what happened. Uh, this mindset is a Germanic one in a way, uh, very much so in, in the sense that these grave mounds that have, uh, you know, goods and treasures in them and so forth, uh, if find them intact, but usually, and this is described in the sagas and elsewhere, the uh, the uh, grave mounds were after a certain period of time. Tribal tradition or clanic tradition would dictate. After a certain amount of time, uh, the family would go into the grave and retrieve certain things, for example, weapons, swords, etc., under the belief that they, they've, they, they are 
already reborn. They're not there anymore. They are on to other things. Uh, for example, this little boy over here is him, reborn. Mm, How do we know that? Well, we gave him his name. Okay, he is the grandfather. Actually, the the uh, German word for grandson is Enkel, which etymologically means little grandfather. And in words like names such as, which is a Gothic name, Gothic tribe name, uh, uh, that the Huns had a lot of Gothic names because they kind of amalgamated themselves ethnically. Uh, Attila, famous Attila the Hun. Attila means little father, literally. Atta, Atta, the Gothic Lord's Prayer starts off, Atta Unsar, our father. And so Attila, the ill thing, uh, just is a diminutive. So Attila means little father, which means he's the father reborn. Oh, you know, he's come back. And that's uh, that's the ancient Germanic, and no, uh, Indo-European probably, but certainly well attested in Germanic tradition. That uh, the uh, the ancestors are uh, reborn in their descendants, and the naming practices show that they would not uh, they would name their children after dead ancestors, believing them to be reborn in them. Sometimes in the sagas and elsewhere, you see where a father will uh, display certain behaviors towards his son which he had displayed towards his father, signs of respect, etc., because of the belief that he actually was him. So, um, Fascinating. Yeah, that's, uh, I wrote my uh, master's thesis on kind of that topic, and uh, the Sigurd saga, how his, the, the great hero, the dragon slayer Sigurd, uh, is actually his father, Sigmund, reborn, and you can tell that in the saga itself because instead of this Volsung clan, which is descended from Odin, that they have special powers. Among the special powers is a clan, all Volsungs can take poison on the outside of their bodies, like venom or whatever. But uh, all, but only the, the head Volsung, the, the actual head of the, of the tribe, uh, can ingest poison and live and be, you know, it's fine. Uh, so Sigmund can do that. Sigmund is, then dies, is killed uh, under the influence of Odin, who actually break, causes him to die. Why? He's cultivating his, his son, who's still in the womb. And he says, Sigmund says to his wife, he says, you are carrying our son, who will be the greatest hero of our people of all time. And uh, so he dies, and then Sigurd is born. And uh, I'm going to go through the whole story. A lot of people know it. Wagner used this for his right, yeah. template and everything. But he uh, he has this moment where he kills this dragon, Fafnir, and He's afraid at first uh, that because he doesn't know all of his powers or anything, but that he's going to get this venom and blood of the serpent on him, which would normally just burn somebody up like acid. Germanic dragons spit 
acidic goo. They didn't breathe fire. They spit this stuff. And uh, so he was worried about that. But Ozen tells him not to be worried. Just dig a trench. Let it just flow onto you. And he does that. That's fine. And it didn't hurt me. And then at one point, he's got the heart of this dragon with the blood bubbling up on it. And he sticks it, he tests it with his finger to see if it's done, because he's going to eat the heart of this dragon to get its power. And or he's actually supposed to give it to his foster father, but that didn't work out <laughs> because of this. He sticks his finger on there, and he puts the finger in his mouth and ingests the heart blood of this acidic, monstrous dragon, which would normally just kill a guy. But instead of that, he can understand the language of the birds around him, which tell him, your foster father is setting you up, and he's going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so he just goes and kills him first, of course. And uh, But see, that uh, the whole gist of the story, we usually get lost in the fairy tale dimensions of it, but what it's saying there is this guy is his father who had those powers because that's what's reborn. It's not like what's reborn. It's not the thing like, well, uh, 200 years ago on uh, Christmas morning, I ate, uh, uh, you know, shepherd's pie. <laughs> I remember that. No, that's not what's important. It's your, the, the essence of the powers and the, 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 the abilities that are reborn, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's what they're describing. It wasn't like nobody ever... Actually, what the old Icelandic sagas had the same function for the Icelanders as what in our New Age tradition we all grew up in, I guess, are things like past life regressions, right? I need to know what happened to my soul in the past so I'll be informed about why I'm, <laughs> what's going on with me now. You know, I was burned as a witch, and that's why I'm so afraid of fire. You know, things <laughs> yeah. like that, you know, that people would say. But in the Icelandic sagas, these are past life regressions. This tells you your whole family background and who your ancestors were and what happened to them and who, who they were, and that is who you are in this latest you know, incarnation. But you are that. Uh, developing and growing. That's what also the Olsen saga tells this story about how uh, through the generations, how it went from you know, pretty ordinary people uh, to the most extraordinary, supposedly in the mythology is said, the most extraordinary individual ever, Sigurd, Sigurd the greatest hero. And, uh, so it tells the story through the generations of how uh, this developed, how this entity developed through various incarnations. Uh, so it's kind of, when you decode it, it's a fascinating world there. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I love this uh, mythology reincarnation. And uh, in your book, Stephen, you talk about the characteristics of a rune-using culture, and you you uh, you mentioned four males only patron had to be Odin. Mm -hmm. Practical religious mm -hmm. uses and the runes maintain their traditional order. So that's a, a good framework. And I, I wanted to ask you in in Germanic culture, like let's say the Greeks or the Aztecs, could a god possess you? Since we are kind of talking about living gods uh, talking to you, was there such a thing? 
Well, uh, n- not uh, ex- exact exactly. It would be descended like a a person, or uh, you know, you will be incarnated uh, through generations that a God would is is really gods are the. Uh, ancestors of us all, because after all, who is uh, what is Odin called? And his most one of his most famous names, of which there are several, uh, you know, a couple of hundred, uh, is Allfather, the father of all. So, well, he is the the god of consciousness, and as a species, we that's our great our gift. He he uh, endows humanity at their creation with consciousness. That's told in the, in the Volus this poem, and so we're all uh, incarnations of that. But uh, possession by a god that just doesn't happen, you know, uh, because you're already a latent god to begin with. No, that makes sense. So it's a matter of unfolding it and, and actualizing it through heroic action, through symbolic action in all sorts of, of ways. Uh, in Sather, the, the practice of soothsaying uh, that you find in the Norse tradition, uh, some people in current uh, influenced by uh, voodoo uh, practices or other uh, things like that, where people are quote, possessed or shamanism, etc., where somebody might be possessed or ridden by a god, so forth. Uh, people have incorporated or, or, or imagined that to be the case, but but if we read the uh, which I wrote a book with uh, my uh, colleague James Chisholm about um, just a source book of this sage practice, where you see all of the examples in the Norse tradition or Norse literature of this practice of uh, of soothsay, where the gods, where gods are, or Entities, I'll put it that way, DC and other things, are attracted to the practitioner. Now, in modern practice, you oftentimes see people have reinterpreted that in in the style of these other uh, exotic traditions. But what we actually see there is that the seeress, usually that's a woman, uh, sits there and you know does these songs or has people do these songs. Then the entities are attracted to her environment, and then they inform her, but she doesn't speak. It's specifically said, you know, that she sits there in silence, and then after it's over, she then just speaks as a, in a conversational way. Yeah, well, that's the thing. She, uh, you know, would you get the, and if you hear, uh, there's a current practitioners who put on a show of, uh, you know, I'm possessed by this God or that and speak in weird voices and such and so forth. <laughs> but, you know, basically, we're just going back to mediumism, you know, medium type of phenomena from the spiritualistic movement. But So there's a, a hunger or thirst for that, but that's just not the way it's described. Wonderful. Well, first, uh, okay. Vance, thanks for keeping us company. I don't know if you have another sure, pun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm I'm uh, I'm all I'm all out of them, oh, but yeah, uh, yeah I appreciated learning all these things about the runes. So much different than the the old twentieth um, century 
reinvention of them. Uh, I do want to mm-hmm. mention to the listeners that do not spell rune dash guild with a U. Don't spend, don't say G U I L D. It's G I L D, right, Stephen? Because mm-hmm. the other site, uh. the the other site is a trap. So be careful. No. So, yes, we you wanted me to change my browser and, and install a plugin. Oh my and, oh, god! Boy. Yeah, so we be should have a thing. Oh I'll put a thing on Facebook or something about that. Yeah, that's a good idea. So R U N E dash G I L D dot org. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah. yeah, thanks for all the info, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, Stephen, we appreciate okay. all the work thank you've you, done, man. and thanks for your time, and uh, good luck with everything. Yeah, thank you, sir. I appreciate your uh, w- w- wishes of good luck. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. Our first part of our interview with Stephen Flowers. In our second part. You know I would ask Stephen if there are any parallels between Gnosticism and North mythology. You know it, and he answers. Stephen will share if there are any films that do justice to runes, Germanic traditions, or Norse metaphysics. We'll double back, and he'll continue giving us more on the history of runes with incredible insights. This includes the magical secrets of runology and even rune secret societies, as well as a lot of history on Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, and Norse history, and much more. So consult your runes and please become a Patreon or AB Prime member for the full magical consultation. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic or Hermetic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel where many past guests hang out there and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. The Finding Hermes program is live, and so are our virtual Alexandria-exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics, and a whole lot of stimulating conversation and a QA. and I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, vowel magic, sex magic, entheogens, astral ascents, mystical Eucharist, and much more. If you want to understand and experience in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. Lastly, I am now on Odyssey and Rockfin, moving away from the larger digital domains and going to places that don't censor and accept crypto. Check me out there. You can do so many wonders, I just know it. I just know it. And like Elliot Alderson, Thunder 
and those ancient rune magicians, you can make a difference in the world. You matter. You are amazing. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.